Hello, everybody, and welcome to another delicious episode of the Chocolate Bros podcast with Adam Pearson. And I am Brian Horsley. Welcome, welcome. Welcome, welcome. Me and Brian and one other guy, Dan Pearson, we're the owners of Fortunato Chocolate. Please check out our website, fortunatochocolate.com. Mm. I, was, I was just chatting with somebody and telling them that our cacao and chocolate travels 10,000 miles before it, it shows up in our warehouse ready to be shipped out. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. It's, uh, it's regrettable. Uh, <laughs> from an, I mean, just from a logistics and an ecological perspective, it'd be great if, the, if it was grown closer. But unfortunately, cacao just doesn't grow anywhere near Seattle. It just that's, how, that's how it goes. Yeah. On the last show, we promised our listeners that we were going to talk a bit about the dogs of Peru. Oh, the dogs of Peru. You ready to, you ready to get into that? I think we should get into it because the dogs of Peru is a topic on which I have lots of experience and a number of observations. May I say one thing just to kick it up, just to kick it off here. Please kick it off. To get us, to get us starting to row in, in, in a particular direction in the current. That was a terrible, that was a terrible metaphor. <laughs> I'm not, yeah. Is this a, <laughs> is that a canoe kind of a, I, yeah. It was an awful metaphor. It was an awful metaphor. Have we ever been on a on a boat together? I'm not it sure if we ever have. It's not pertinent to the topic at hand whatsoever. Absolutely. Let's uh, let's so, go, let's roll our bowling balls down the lane <laughs> at the same time, bro. And let's knock some pins down together. All okay. Right? So, one thing to point out is that animals in Peru are not perceived as family, really, the way they are here in the United States. Is that not- accurate? In many cases, not. Some are, some aren't, but in many, in many cases, not. And in particular, in rural areas where we uh, work and get our cacao, animals are considered uh, working members of a farm collective rather than beloved indoor members of the family. Yes. As, as a result, in many cases, what you see are dogs roaming around the street. That's right. And I should have said, not just in rural areas, but even in the city, in Cajamarca, where we, where we lived and you met your wife, where we both met our wives, uh, dogs are, some dogs are treated like pets in the American sense, but most dogs are treated like loosely affiliated family members that are free to come and go as they please and uh, whose job is to protect the house. And, and one thing you see in Peru that you rarely see here in the United States is dogs roaming the street mm-hmm. in packs. That is what, what are these dogs doing when they're roaming the streets in packs? Are they just looking to hook up with other dogs? Are they looking for food? Well, exploring? What's what are the what's what's a day look like? Yeah. For dog, a, roaming, dog, a roaming dog in Peru. Dog business. They're 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 going <laughs> about the business of dog. Uh, and so that could be just what you're saying. Roaming around, um, looking for food, um, you know, looking for mischief, looking for fun, having some fun. I mean, now let's put it this way. Adam, if all you had to do was roam around in your pack all day, what would you do to fill your time? Yeah, probably look for food. Yeah, look uh, for food, look for some mischief, look for fun. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know what I think you see in Peru quite quite frequently with dogs is you'll see like one female dog standing in a, in a group, and then you just see a bunch of male dogs fighting, getting into physical confrontation, seeing who's going to get to mate with the female dog. Okay, so let me kick off this conversation of dogs in Peru by talking about the neighbor across the street from me. We'll get to the dogs of the Campo, but the neighbor across the street from me in Cajamarca, a fellow with a, um, uh, a common thing in Peru, he had a, a great big a gate that would open up and then cars would park in his, uh, in, in, on his property as it's sort of this big unpaved dirt area and he would pull cars in and out of there at all hours of the day and night. He had this great big gray painted metal 
uh, rolling, you know, gate over there or, or gate that went in and out. And he had dogs, guard, uh, guard dogs, essentially, that would be there loose in that parking area, making sure that nobody tried to get in there and steal any a car or anything from a car um, any time of the day or night. And he kept a female dog over there and would not, would not get that dog taken care of, fixed. And so she was constantly entering into heat and attracting a crowd of male dogs whose preferred office hours to come uh, fight for her attentions were about midnight to 5 a.m. And so what we would have is a, a group <laughs> of anywhere from five to 12 rowdy, upset, uh, distracted, angry male dogs on the outside of a, of a, of a, of a, a big gate. And there was a gap of about nine to 10 inches underneath that gate, which she could get in and out of. And a Kate, one of some of the smaller male dogs could get in and out of. So there was this loud, rowdy, annoying uh, group of dogs, yipping, yapping, barking, and then occasionally breaking out into explosive bouts of dog violence on the street in front of my house every three or four months forever. And this would go on all night. And no matter how much we complained to the neighbor, no matter how much we did anything about it, there was really nothing we could do. So any, any dog that was not affiliated with those dogs that were trying to fight over her attentions, uh, if someone was walking their dog, those dogs would come over and try to attack that dog or the person. If people were walking down the street, they would, they would try to attack cars. So Brian, uh, Brian <laughs> so would you go talk to that dude? And you say, hey, uh, it's insane what's going on at night in front of your house. Can we, uh, can we do uh, yeah. something about this? How does he respond to that? With complete feigned or not ignorance of like, I don't know what you're telling you. If you're not to know what I was talking about. It must have been worse for him. It's in you front of think, his house. You would think so. So I finally had to come up with my own solution to this. Uh, so I, we had a, a, a third floor on our house and I had a panoramic, you know, uh, uh, up top view of all the activity. I forgot to mention the dogs that were inside the neighbor's houses would frequently get up on their roofs at night. And when these other dogs were down on the street, getting excitable, it would cause all the dogs in the whole neighborhood to start oh, going off in a, man. in a barking frenzy. And this went on for, I mean, this went on for years, frankly. So finally I, so I, I would, gather up uh, uh i would buy limes which are small they're like the limes in peru delicious by the way are like key limes here in the united states they're yeah, small more acidic dense. and i would go up on the third floor and i would throw limes at the dogs and try to just drive them away but these dogs were savvy wait a second you would throw limes at them yeah i would throw limes did, at did that did that work ever? Limes, you can buy limes for 10 lime, 10 peruvian cents which <laughs> I is know, but three that's... cents and i would try to throw the limes at these dogs and kind of scare them away no it didn't work because these <laughs> yeah, dogs, that does... no a, 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 <laughs> as hard as i could throw a lime from my third floor across the street directly in front of our house was not hard enough to deter these dogs brian from, brian yes. Brian, you know I love you unconditionally, right? Yes, of course. You're my, you're my man. Yeah, <laughs> you're, my, you're like my soulmate. You're mm -hmm. soul. You're like one of my soulmates. Uh, I feel the same way about you, bro. 
throwing limes at dogs. Oh, <laughs> I mean, that's, I a, that's really a rough solution, well, man. That, you know, that, that had very little chance of succeeding it, right it out of the not, gate. It did not succeed. Well, I had to step up my game eventually. So that, that it consisted of, and I, by the way, if there are people out there that are animal rights activists or anything like this, I want to apologize in advance. <laughs> I'm about to say, you're probably not going to agree with, but you didn't have to live with this situation. And I tried, I talked to the city officials. I talked to the, the local police, the uh, Serenazgo, the night, um, the night people, the neighbor himself, his mom. I went to his mom and complained. And she was like, <laughs> what, what are you complaining about? They're just doing dog stuff. They didn't care. So I finally, the last, I went down to the, I came to the United States and I bought a slingshot, a pretty good slingshot. And I went to the local equivalent of a Home Depot and I bought a bag of gravel suitable for a garden. And I would slingshot, I wasn't trying to hit dogs and hurt dogs, but I would slingshot uh, small rocks into this guy's big metal gate that he had on the street. And it would make an absolutely explosive bang when I did that. And the dogs would scatter. And then when the dogs scattered, I would try to, you know, put one on the ground near enough dogs to get them to run away. And if you could just get the numbers down to a reasonable, um, you know, level, then they would kind of disperse. But I would have to do that sometimes three times a night. I'd have to get up at 3 a.m. to go slingshot. You know, you're talking about animal rights activists. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the animal rights activists are protecting pretty tame versions That's right. of, of That's animals. Right. So I remember when I was in when I was in Cajamarca as well. I was mm -hmm. when I first got there, I was teaching English at the university. The word I, got out. I remember that. The word got out that there was a white guy who taught English. I started getting a lot of private English lessons that would have mm -hmm. me roaming around Cajamarca looking for the houses of my students. What would usually happen is they would come catch me at the university and just handwrite their address down for me and I would try to go find it. And this right. this had me wandering down quite a few. <laughs> and now I'm going to take a wild guess and say that these were directions in typical Peruvian fashion that were something like Giron Santa Alicia uh third yeah. block and yeah, you with, go, a refer with a reference like uh, around the corner from the church yeah you go around the corner. That town with 493 churches all yeah. around the corner from yeah. and, and, and always just go down there a ways <laughs> you'll find yeah, it that's right it's a little, yeah. a little further down and then around the corner yeah so i would be wandering around some back roads and qu quite frequently there would be a pack of dogs that i would come across mm -hmm. and they seemed like they were ready and willing to totally attack me <laughs> I mean, they were ready and they were willing they were ready and willing yes i obviously being an american from the united states and was not too familiar with how to react when a dog is is going to attack you mm -hmm. i usually try to but, walk it's, but it's never just one dog that's the, no that's it's it's yeah, no right. no and so i would walk away from them quickly that mm -hmm. didn't work no, no. <laughs> do a no. speed walk do no, a speed walk no they'll faster. just follow you yeah. They'll just follow you. Mm -hmm. I resorted to turning around and uh, trying to put my hands up in the air, like a, oh, make yourself big, yeah, yeah, make myself big. Um, and, and more for bears, at, more for bears, but I, I take the point and yell at them like ah, that <laughs> that surprised them for a second, but ultimately did not detour them. <laughs> and they just would yell right back at me, and then they would immediately mm -hmm. see my true colors because I would. I would retreat immediately. So the point, like this guy is all bark and no bite. Um, to use, you know, to use um, well, as, as expression. Yeah. So as I've already uh, pointed out, you 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 can't go one on one with these dogs. You have to use you, a military strategy and project your force. You have well, to, and also you can't you can't fake it. 
I, th- I think dogs have a sense about whether or not you're actually dangerous to them or not. That's right. And so what I resorted to at one point, I just learned that I actually could run faster than these dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so also, I was better at climbing a tree <laughs> way better. Yeah. So no, but for real. So ultimately if I saw dogs and they, they started threatening me, I would just run away. And yeah. uh, that worked, that worked pretty well. But on occasion, I have thought back to what I must have looked like to the locals. At the time, I didn't think about it. It's like, here's this super tall white guy wandering mm-hmm. around in some back alley, lost. Big old galoot. The only way. Big old galoot. Yeah. The, the dogs are coming at me. I turn around. I lift up my arms, make myself big and yell at them, and then immediately run away. Oh, that's <laughs> They must have just thought I was the dumbest guy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, I mean, dogs have the world's keenest sense of who's in charge and who's not. And if you can convince a dog that you're not prey and that you're in charge, they will absolutely back down. And if they are not convinced that you're in charge and and they 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 will never, ever leave you alone. And so this is something, a conversation that I had many times with my Peace Corps friends that used to come over to my house in Cajamarca quite a bit. Uh, I knew a half a dozen of them that had in fact been bitten by dogs. They constantly complained about it. And uh, it all went back to when Peace Corps volunteers come to Peru, they get trained at a place in Lima. And part of their training was how to deal with the dogs of Peru. And what they said was, look away and let the dog look away. Don't meet the dog. Don't be aggressive, be submissive. And you're sending the message to the dog that you're prey. And they treat you as prey and they would bite these guys, guys and gals, they would bite them. And this happened half a dozen times. They were teaching them exactly the wrong thing as you discovered. Yeah. Animals, animals, wild kind of wild animals respect a strong, a strong hand. Um, And, and the, the couple of times I ran into dogs out in Campo, you know, out, out, out where the cacao grows. That frightened the bejesus out of me. So Campo dogs are like, so I, I remember having a couple of dogs just, freak out on me and there was nowhere to run mm-hmm. and i didn't know what to do and both times luckily the farmer came over and right. and, gra- and grabbed the dog but so, those dogs were terrifying well so campo dogs are absolutely expected and 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 must protect their house by being viciously aggressive and anybody that comes walking up to the house so what you do with a campo dog and i learned this with long experience uh in in cacao whenever you're going to walk into a cacao farmer's walk up to a cacao farmer's home, you can assume he's got some vicious dogs in there, he or she. And so what you have to do is stop well short of the house, pick up some rocks, because as I said, you must project power. It's a military operation, Adam. You must project your power. And that means you're going to have to throw some rocks at this dog. You're not really necessarily trying to hit the dog. You're trying to make the dog aware that you can do some damage at a distance so that it won't get close enough to bite you. You stop well short of the house. And then you say, let's uh, imagine that the dog, that the, the, the farmer is, um, you know, uh, Don, Don Jimenez. So you would stop a uh, hundred, you know, a football field away from the house and say, Don Jimenez, Don Jimenez, and, and start yelling for Don Jimenez. And as soon as you announced your presence, you would, what would, first thing you hear, <laughs> three, four, five dogs, and they would immediately start triangulating your position and start coming towards you. So you have to, it, it's better if you have a, some kind of a big stick, a walking stick or a branch from a tree in your hand and a couple of rocks in the other hand. And as soon as they come a little bit close to you, hopefully you're going to hear the farmer say, cha, cha, and start to start to get control of the dogs. But if not, you got to be ready to fend these dogs off long enough for the farmer to get them under control. But sometimes the farmer's not home. And then what do you do? Well, you're being attacked by five vicious semi-feral attack dogs. 
so then what do you just bail well yeah but slowly never taking your eyes off the dogs throwing the occasional rock at them to keep them at a distance do i do i remember you telling me towards them with a stick do i remember that one time you told me you actually pulled out a knife and you were looking the dog in the eyes and just trying to just trying to transmit into that dog's brain like this is a fight to the death dog you you don't (laughs) want this i absolutely did i i I have pulled my my i i have the i i picked up the custom of walking around armed with a with a fairly decent sized knife either well of course in campo people just walk around with a machete loose in their hands and i picked up that habit as well walking around in campo i often had a machete loose in my hands um and you know dogs are visually very have great visual acuity and they recognize when someone's got a machete in their hand and they that is the thing that will keep them at bay but i had a knife in my pocket and i got into a very very tense chess match with a dog (laughs) one time i would make my move and he would make his move i'm assuming it was a he but it may not have been and we had a little bit of a stalemate going on and finally i pulled out my knife flipped it open this is in cajamarca this was um oh this uh, is in cajamarca all right but this is in cajamarca it It was on a street in cajamarca this was an urban assault dog and uh yes and i finally pulled out my knife and i kind of uh came towards him and i had it ready to go and i and i did i was looking him in the eye as if to say it's you or me fella we're going to do this right now. And one of us is not going home and, uh, and it's going to be you. And uh, eventually the dog just kind of gave me enough space to get by and go about my way. But it, it was a very tense, very that's a tense crazy, few minutes there. That's a crazy thing to have to pull out your knife on anybody, a human, a dog. That's wild, man. I've so, been, I, I also, I've, I've also had to use it uh, to, to scare humans away, but the go dog, ahead and go ahead and just, different. Go ahead. Yeah, that's a, 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 a mad dog is more terrifying than a mad human. Oh, gosh. Unless the human has a, a weapon, just an unarmed being dog way more scary than an unarmed, unarmed human. Absolutely. Um, wouldn't you have to pull your knife on a person? Let's hear about that. That sounds intriguing. Well, I was on a I was on a bus ride uh, back from Campo going to my house in Cajamarca. I came on an overnight bus ride from Hyen to Chiclayo. And uh, I was didn't get much sleep. Uh, I, I can't remember why I was in a big hurry to get home and I didn't have a bus ticket for the VIP service. So I was on a regular bus, very uncomfortable, overnight bus. It left high end at about 10 or 11 at night and got into Chicago at five or six in the morning. So I was uh, had almost no rest. I was exhausted. And then there was no uh, good bus to go from Chicago up to Cajamarca. So I took a um, uh, a, a lower end, a cheaper, lower class bus that stops in a lot of places and has uncomfortable seats. And those buses are known for having, um, you know, criminals on them who steal things from the other people on a bus. So I had a backpack with me. I put the backpack down between my feet and wrapped one of the arm things around my, um, around my ankle. And I couldn't stay awake. I tried to stay awake, but I couldn't stay awake. And we, I was jolted awake as the bus stopped at a, at a place called Chapin, nasty little town known for its, uh, uh, known for its uh, like street delinquency, street uh, robbery and so forth. And as the bus jolted to a stop at the tiny little bus terminal in Chapin, I looked down at my feet and realized that my backpack was gone. As I slept, somebody had taken it from around my feet. And I looked up and I saw a fellow getting off the bus with a with a backpack, a, a certain type of backpack they have in Peru that just has strings for the arm straps. Yeah. And it's very loose. And inside was the, I could see was another backpack that was very obviously my backpack inside his backpack. And he had 
taken it, put it in his backpack and was walking off the bus. So I got up and started yelling and making a scene. And he had an accomplice, a big fellow who got in my way and detained me from getting out quick enough. Luckily, one of the fellows on the bus line, uh, as the thief got off the bus and started going quickly down the block, the fellow from the bus line followed him. And when I managed to get my way off the bus, he called me over and the person was down uh, at the end of the block. And I ran as quickly as I could. And I had a bunch of valuables in that backpack. I wasn't prepared to lose it. So I cornered the person who sold my backpack and we were on a street where I didn't have any friends and I had to assume that he did. And I wasn't prepared to, to make this a long drawn out uh, confrontation. So I pulled my knife and I brandished it at him. And I basically tried to, I didn't have the words to say it, but I tried to let him know, like, I'm willing to cut you for this backpack. Were you willing to cut him for the backpack? I, gosh, at that moment I was tired and a little bit enraged and I had a head of steam. I don't like to think that I would have actually cut him over property, but I mean, I was, he certainly bought it because he dropped the backpack with my backpack in it and walked away. And I cut it open, pulled my backpack out, took a good look around with my knife still in my hand to see if anybody was going to give me any problems about it. They weren't. And I walked back to the bus with my backpack in my hand, give a nice cash tip to the guy who- That bus me. driver was a pretty legit guy. I did. Good, good I man. To help me. Good person. He got, he, he made a little money off of that deal. I think 50 or hundred solace and I went about my business, but uh, it was a scary adrenaline filled situation. I can't say which is worse facing down a dog or the person they're both uncomfortable and I don't recommend it. At least dogs don't steal your backpack, man. There's that, <laughs> you know, that, so that's a, that's, I, you know, you got to well, face that. I'd rather face that a human than a dog, but I'd rather be on a, a long bus ride with dogs than humans no nope i can't say that either so it just the only thing dogs really got going for themselves in this comparison is they don't steal backpacks that's right yeah humans, humans rarely bite you i'll say that for humans. so, <laughs> that's, so mean, that's a that's a, a mark in favor of humans there's pros and cons i gotta so. do it i gotta just say this i say it on almost every episode now if you were to go to our website fortunatochocolate.com you would see pictures of our children smiling holding our chocolate you would see quotes from these fancy restaurateurs and chocolatiers and pastry chefs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And you would think that this was all fun and games, but <laughs> dude, how much, um, how many tense situations have you had to face down? Have we had to face down as a family financially and just having to be in another country and driving through the, you know, driving through some really off the beaten track kind of places where there's criminals and, wild dogs to make this chocolate thing a reality. You oh, just would never wow. guess it based on looking at our website. That's right. I think people, people from, from, from wealthier countries tend to forget how, how wild Westy a lot of the world is, particularly in poorer third world countries. Uh, there are parts of Peru that are quite well settled and, and quite calm and orderly. But when you get out into a lot of the rural areas, the, the, presen the presence of the state is, uh, is slim to none. And folks are going to have to be that folks have to band together to provide for their own security. That is a good, good point that, yeah, a lot of people have forgotten what it's like when there's no real government around providing protection. And what presence there is, is basically there not to protect them, but to, to, to siphon off uh, of resources from that. We're, we're, we're not getting into cacao, which I want to, but I want to ask, I, I just remembered one other thing that I want you to tell me that I hope you will refresh my memory on. Mm -hmm. Did, is there not 
a time when there was a mafia guy out in the in the town where we buy cacao or around there and a bunch like a vigilante crew got together and took that guy out yes the town that we the town that we have our our processing facility in puerto ceruelo we talked about the decision to move from Hyann to Puerto Cerro. We did on our last one. We'll get back into the into the cacao right. processing facility that we built. When I and, and we talked a little bit about the security issues in Hyann. When I talked to Noe, the president of the Cacao Growers Association, a, a, a gentleman who would go on to become my best friend in Campo, um, father to two godchildren of mine. Um, when I asked him about the security situation, I said, "No way, we can't invest here if we're going to have our all our cacao robbed all the time and all our equipment robbed all the time and and any money that I'm carrying to pay farmers." And he said, "No, no, there's not really any problem with crime around here." And I said, "Well, that's impossible. There's a problem with crime <laughs> everywhere. So how is it that this place magically exists with no crime?" He said, "Well, we had a lot of problems with crime up until last year." And I said, "Well, what happened last year?" He said, "Well." There was a family, a father and uh, the, the, the boys, and they lived up in, um, in San Isidro, uh, not the one that's in Lima, San Isidro locally there. And they used to rob everybody. They robbed me. They robbed everybody. So um, our Ronda Campesina, our local citizens posse, uh, hired the citizen posse from a village about 10 miles away to kill them. And he, they did. Um, they, they, they actually killed the dad and his oldest son, the mom and the younger son left forever immediately at that moment and never came back. And he said, he said, by the way, he, he presented this to me like it was absolutely normal. Yeah. And he said, so once we took care of them, we haven't had any crime problems. Since. Well, so I laughed. I said, well, yeah, I guess you have it. Well, think about the day of like Wyatt Earp and those guys is you get together a posse. Yeah. That's you get together that's- a bunch of the town folks to try to run the bad guys out of town, the wild West, just like you said. It's the Wild West. And, and you know, the, the term riding shotgun is a commonly known as sitting yep. in the front seat, but that's a real thing. When we wanted to ship, when we want to ship cacao out, we would have one of Noe's brothers ride on top of it with a shotgun. We still do that? Uh, no, since they built the bridge, we haven't been doing gotcha. that. Um, and that, there's a pretty cool story about that town, San Ysidro, that relates to, I forget the guy, who's the guy who used to do um, security for us? Oh, uh, Don... Gosh, now I can't remember. I know it's been a while, but, but he was like one of the reasons that town got called San Ysidro. But I'll, that's that's a story. That's a story for a different day. So, okay. all right, bro, let's get back on track with the cacao and the chocolate. So, back. look, where we left off, we we had just moved to the um, the Campesino community owned rice mill mm-hmm. in Puerto Ciruelo. That's right. We still did not really have our head around how to how to do good cacao we, we, we when did you feel point, like you when did you feel like we broke through bro and it was like at, yes we know what point, we're doing now at that point that we decided to invest in building a facility i knew we knew what to do we hadn't seen it have the consistent great results but we knew what to do we knew about the fermentation we knew we had randomized our fermentation so that it wasn't so that, that so that we were getting uniform results hey brian we were, mm-hmm Talk to me about this randomization thing. Sorry to cut you off in the middle of the story, but this is an important thing because this is a part of the reason why the chocolate tastes so good. Okay. And it's also right. something that not many other, I mean, maybe no other chocolate companies do. So, so please no. tell me about that a little bit. Sorry to no, cut in on you. It's all right. When you ferment cacao, you have to um, put it in a big wooden box and let it ferment. And there's two phases to the fermentation. There's the anaerobic or, or non, no oxygen phase. And then there's the aerobic or oxygenated phase. And in the anaerobic phase, you put it in this big box and uh, uh, yeast spores that are uh, all around us in the air and that also that are on banana leaves that you put in the box with the cacao, 
yeast eats the sugar that's in the 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 um the baba the the, the pulp mucilage, the mucilage the pulp that's around the beans and it creates alcohol um but it kind of smells like the rubbing alcohol that you would have in your bathroom closet uh, and then that goes on for about 48 hours. And then you take it out and give it some air. And a lot of the water content has sloughed away at that point, the air, alcohol, and certain bacteria that live on the inner skin of the beans underneath the, the pulp start to combine in a chemical reaction that creates heat. And that heat gets very hot. It gets up to, uh, like 140 degrees and that create, that changes the chemistry inside the cacao bean and it gives it that great chocolate flavor. And it also has fruity and nutty and creamy notes, etc. So one thing that I was doing wrong when to, to give the beans air, you have to take them out and mix them. And I had this idea that you wanted to make sure I had split the box into five imaginary levels. And I was trying to make sure that the beans that were on level one at the top ended up as far away as they could. I had this whole algorithm for how to put the beans, take the beans out of the box and back into the box so that the average distance from where a bean started and where it ended up was maximized. And um, that, that worked in the sense of separating the beans. But what you really want to do is just mix them all together. You want every bean to have an, the exact same chance to land at the top, bottom, side, middle, anywhere in the box. It's completely random. And that way, all the heat gets distributed evenly and the fermentation happens uniformly across every part of the box. But it took me a long time to understand that. And I was operating under a concept called false precision, where you think you're doing something the right way because you're being precise about it. But what you really want to do is randomize it and let the forces of, of, of random take over and ensure uniformity throughout the box. Important lesson for life. Let me make a couple of, uh, couple of comments about that. Mm -hmm. So first for all of our listeners who enjoy chocolate, this is a big part of the reason why our chocolate is consistently delicious. Because of this randomization, every cacao bean has its optimal opportunity to ferment correctly. Mm -hmm. And if a cacao bean is not fermented correctly, then it makes, it makes the flavor worse, either too acidic or if it gets over fermented, it becomes like hammy. Mm -hmm. So this, this method of, of fermentation is actually, I'd say, an innovation that Brian stumbled upon with the help of some other some other people who came down and gave us some ideas. Mm -hmm. It is also massively labor intensive. Oh. And, and it led to, I would say, a number of conflicts over the years between the financial part of this business, which was me and my dad and Brian operations part, because this is not something that really you get economies of scale as you start to grow. Like no matter what, you still have to take every single cacao bean out and hand mix it and put right, it back so we should, in. We should explain that in order to get an, uh, in order yeah, to yeah, go, mix, yeah, yeah, good to point. To, to really mix the beans, because you have to do this for, for the, the fermentation takes a week. And every day you have to pull every bean out of this big box. And when I say big, this is a three and a half foot by three and a half foot um, by three feet tall box that holds 700 pounds of cacao beans. Um, and you have to take a big bucket and get down and stand on a stool on the side of this box and dig the beans out and put them in a big cart. And then you have like three or four people just take with their hands and just mix all the beans together and make sure they get air and oxygen. And then you have to take buckets and just put it right back in the box. And that is a time consuming, hot, vinegary, sweaty, unpleasant, expensive, labor intensive thing to do. And, and five yeah. times for every single lot of beans that goes in one of those boxes. And you could have 20 boxes going all. At the same yeah. Time. And by five times, yeah, five times, five days in a row. And 
and it does not, there is no economies of scale. There's so, really no way we, uh, we, we, we could have automated certain parts of it through great capital investment, but it was never cost effective. No. And, and so the question always became, well, do you want to make the best chocolate or not? Mm-hmm. That, that's what it came down to. Are we, are we willing to spend the money that it takes to do this right or not? Like, how good do we want this chocolate to be? And thanks to Brian and his obstinance. There you go. Another, <laughs> another big word. <laughs> just his pig, just his pig-headed stubbornness. <laughs> thanks, pig-headed, stubborn, obstinate fellow. Yeah, just his, it, just his, um, yeah, his his irrepressible his irrepressible stubbornness. I I, I like to consider myself, you know, a person who enjoys quality. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if obstinate and intemperate are necessarily the words yeah. to describe just his unwillingness to consider the financial right. impact of what he was insisting on <laughs> my unflinching ignorance towards anything that would even remotely resemble common sense right? yeah but it, it ended up it ended up really working out and it's it's a big reason why a lot of other stuff happened even though at the time when we had to we had to fund it and finance it it was it was a bitter pill to swallow and <laughs> just our other partner, Dan, who's not on this call over and over again, I remember this conversation of like, well, what do you mean we don't have any economies of scale? And you are like, we just don't have any. I don't know what else to say. I can't make it more clear. There's nothing I can do about it. And no, I, it, just, it just doesn't make any sense. Why won't we get economies of scale? We just don't. Why do we have to keep having this conversation over and over again? Yeah, because the way it was set up there. So some here's here's how people try to avoid some of this labor intensiveness of this. They build step fermentation systems, which is they can go up as much as 30 feet high and you start by putting the beans in the top box. And then instead of actually lifting them out and mixing them by hand every they day, they fall down to the next the, level. You open, you open up a side gate and you scoop these boxes down. If anyone Googles step fermentation system for cacao, they'll see some examples of this. But what is the problem with that? The beans that are on the side of the box, right where the side gate opens up, can only end up at the bottom of the next box. There is no randomness. The beans are predetermined, it's predetermined where they're going to be in the next box based on their position in the first box. And so what you get is uneven, incomplete, uh, less quality fermentation. It, you can make chocolate from those beans, but it's simply not going to be as good. And, and, and also not as much exposure, exposure to the air. They don't get as much oxygen. They get clumping. And you also don't necessarily, if you have beans from different farms together, they don't get as nearly hey. as good of a mix. And nowhere near as much eye candy, right? Not as many dudes with their shirts, with their shirts off, sweating, I mean, just muscles toned from mixing so much cacao. <laughs> All right, this, this took a, this took a, a, a right, surprising turn. But let, me, but let me say this about the, yeah. about, so what people can't possibly imagine is it's so it's jungle hot obviously because we're in the amazon jungle and you're in a roofed hot room with beans that are fermenting generating even more heat and it's the middle of the day and you want these beans to stay hot so you have to do these stirs at the middle of the day the beet the natural fermentation process of cacao creates a lot of acetic acid anybody who doesn't know what acetic acid is can look it up a mixture of about four percent acetic acid and 96 percent water is a little thing we like to call vinegar Fermenting cacao beans creates a ton of acetic acid. It's, it's really powerful. It smells like vinegar. So when you've got beans that are well along in their fermentation process, they're about 
52 degrees Celsius, or I guess that's probably 130 degrees hot. So hot that it, it hurts to put your hand right. You in. have to, you have to let it cool off before you could really start mixing it. You take the cover off these things and you start to put a bucket in it and you start to scoop and the smell of vinegar is so overwhelming that it would be hard to breathe. We experimented with gas masks actually, <laughs> but it was so hot and sweaty that you could never, you couldn't actually wear a gas mask. So what we would end up doing is actually taking a big breath of air, <gasps> getting down in the box, scooping up beans, bringing them out, and then gasping <sighs> for air, dripping sweat, pouring sweat in the middle of the day in this repressively hot uh, uh, environment. And then we would have to, you'd have to take out, I mean, you can get maybe 20 kilos of beans per scoop, but this is, there's 700, there's no, there's 400 kilos. So it takes a number of scoops to get all the beans out and that's just one box. There could be as much as 20 boxes fermenting at the same time at any time. And you know what's sort of awesome? So it's nobody knows that, but it's sort of awesome if you if you just run it all the way out to what, what finally happens. You could just go pick up a box of sea salted caramels for like eight bucks. Right. You know, you just avoid all that. But anyways, um, so here's the, here, just to get back, back to the story a little bit. So we're doing that. How long are we at the... At, at that facility. How long did this go on for? The first facility we built, the first facility we built in the, in the community, in the Campesino community rice mill, we were there for two harvest seasons, about uh, ended up being about 20 months that we were there. And we went into it knowing what to do, but not having perfected all the details. And of course, you know, the details are super important in any industrial endeavor. So we, at that facility, we, we, not perfected. There's no such thing as perfected, but we got the details down well enough to have a, an exportable quality product that, that chocolate clients of ours fell in love with. And we continued to refine our process and we continued to invest capital in building out that facility to make it the facility that we needed it to be storage wise. We needed a place to do um, maintenance on our motorcycle fleet. We didn't have a truck back then. Um, we needed to lay concrete floors, fix the walls, fix the roof, improve the plumbing. Um, uh, everything. Bro. Yeah, bro. And at that time, you started to build your, build a team as well, right? So, how many employees did you, did we end up having at that By facility? The, at that facility that we were at for a little less than two years, I think we had a team of probably at the height of the season, maybe twelve people. Mm -hmm. You know, what we you know what we really got to talk about on the next episode, bro. What's that? what it was like to ride those, that motorcycle fleet out and out to the cacao farms. Now, did you ever hop on a motorcycle and actually drive it out to a farm on a cacao pickup? I never rode a motorcycle. No, I don't. I've never ridden a motorcycle. Okay. It, yeah. It's a uh, zoom, but you saw the crew, you saw the crew zoom out. I've, in the morning. I've, I've driven out to cacao pickups, mm -hmm. but I never rode a motorcycle. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. fairly, it's, it's, it's fairly wild to be leaving in a fleet of four or five motorcycles. It's so awesome, dude. And when I was, when I was working down there, I, I mean, I was working in the facility, the pickup crew went out and did all the pickups mm -hmm. and I saw them leaving and coming back, mm -hmm. but they were that dude. That was, that was a crew of studs <laughs> getting the motorcycles together, ready to ride out into the countryside. Sometimes your, when it's raining, yeah. it's the, the roads are muddy. And you they're just, your, you got your Wellingtons on your mud boots. You've got your, uh, you got yeah, your poncho, yeah. you got your, backpack, you got your poncho. You got your, yep. You got your goggles. We didn't wear helmets. Uh, you got your goggles, you got your hat on. Probably you've got your earphones in cause you're going to rock some music going up. And, uh, 
you go up, we put a little gas in at the, at the gas station just up the hill, um, which is a barrel of gas and a funnel. We got to talk about that. I mean, one of my all-time favorite pictures <laughs> is seeing this lady with a funnel and basically just a, a water pitcher scooping gas into a funnel <laughs> yeah. in, a pitcher, in a pitcher of water. Yeah, it was a, it's a little different. And then and then you guys and then there a, a convoy of five motorcycles. Uh, these are 200 cc Chinese uh, dirt bikes. Uh, go zooming out of town up the hill, rung rung, and uh, some have passengers, some don't. And I'll tell you, it was pretty impressive. Yeah. It, and that and you you created that whole operation too. And you know another yeah, thing and that went was, on, and went on the first 200 cacao pickup. We 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 got to get into that. And the other thing that was always so epic was when the team came back from, from the pickups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and because a lot, of noise, a lot of movement and a lot of excitement because the because the, the 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 plant crew could finally get to work on on getting the beans. Well, yeah, the plant crew would end their day probably at four. After you do all the stirs and everything's kind of settled down, and then you basically have to just chill out for a few hours and, and wait, wait for the pickup for the, crew, wait for the campo crew to get there. With yeah. The and then they get back and then it's another three or four hours of really hard work. That's right. Until but, nine, and then didn't have group dinner. Yeah. Yeah. So, so amazing, actually mm -hmm. that um, those were some, those were some amazing times, dude. Yeah. Uh, good stuff. And, and the other thing we really got to get into also is, so I think on the next podcast, we talk more, uh, more animal stories, more, I think we should do some more critter stories. Okay. And then also talk about, just the whole experience of riding, riding out as a convoy, um, riding as a convoy into the countryside and, 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 and um, harvesting cacao. I think I that'd be a great thing. How many times I was on a long motorcycle ride, hot, dusty, or wet, rainy, slippery, dangerous, with or without a passenger, when I thought to myself, what series of decisions that I've made in my life has led to me being in this dangerous uncomfortable, bouncy, uh, dusty, muddy, uh, situation that I'm in now. And what, if, what should I be looking to trade up, trade down, trade sideways? What have I done to end up in this situation? Am I loving it? Am I hating it? What, you always what, have time to think about these things. Well, what was the answer? Oh, so looking back on it, did you love it more or did you hate it more? Looking what's your, what, what's your overall impression of that period? I wouldn't trade any of it, but my kidneys didn't always enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. So you and your kidneys were at odds on this, you know, have yeah. differing opinions. My back, my knees, my kidneys all have their input, but overall well, I wouldn't trade any of it. It would be it, good. It would be good to get the kidneys on the podcast and see what they have to say about well, the issue. I'll see. I'll try to book them. We'll see. What yeah. We see, I mean, see if they're available. <laughs> I'll talk to my organ booker and, and, and see what she can learn. What, uh, what was that old country song about the long haul truck drivers? Like we're having a caravan or something like that. You remember that song? We got a great big convoy <laughs> coming down the line. Is that what it is? <laughs> no, no. All right. I'll, I'll look that up for the next podcast as well. I think that's more along your, your side of the music spectrum than mine. Yeah. Yeah. All right, bro. Well, well I guess we can go ahead and wrap it up. You want to go ahead and um, sign us off with, with the new Fortunato number four jingle <laughs> i'm telling you this is not the new this is the old if anybody's listening and you're a jingle <laughs> a writer a jingle performer jingle adjacent in any way do you know a musician anyone with one of those little casio uh, uh keyboards would do uh we're looking to upgrade our jingle because me me singing it at the end of every episode cannot be satisfying for anybody one last thing just remember everybody to go check out fortunatochocolate.com Please right. check, check out it out. Beautiful, chocolate. beautiful mod chocolate models we have on there. Those are our kids. One of them is going to be um, taking over this podcast someday. 
absolutely and many years many years in the future job. yeah <laughs> yeah well they'll have a blueprint you know they'll be able to follow in our footsteps <laughs> that's right and, they're gonna stand on the shoulders of giants. yeah stand on the shoulders of, uh, of giants and i just wanna i'm the marketing i'm the marketing person i think you're wrong about the jingle Right. I think it's, I think our current jingle is authentic. You know, it's a grassroots jingle. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely deep in the weeds for sure. It's a, it's, a, right. it's a jingle of the people by the people for the people, man. It's, yeah. It's by one person, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but for the people, but for the people, it's, it's for the folks that are listening to the show. All right, go ahead and hit us with it. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Fortunato. Yum. All right, buddy. Signing <laughs> off. We'll talk to you later. Have a good week.